Radio Free South Dakota. Uh, as always, it's me, your host, John, um, reporting to you from the RFSD secure bunker deep underneath the Corn Palace. Um, and first and foremost, uh, I just want to say that, you know, my love and condolences and solidarity goes out to the family of George Floyd and as well as to all. Um, victims of pol racism, police brutality, and violence and oppression. Um, and this episode, you know, is going to be a little different, obviously. I'm sure you all, uh, if you're paying attention, I'm sure you see what's going on in the world right now. And um, I just, uh, we didn't put anything out just because, you know, things popped off and we've been busy. Um, and I just wanted to wait um, because I just didn't, I had no idea what was happening. I mean, things were moving so quickly that uh, I just felt needed to wait. Um, and things are still happening. You know, as we speak, this movement hasn't stopped. I mean, in Seattle, they got the Chaz, uh, the motherfucking Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And while I may be a communist, um, not an anarchist, I definitely love to see it. And, you know, the there's the meme of, uh, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Nobody likes to talk about communist memes. But um, I just wanted to kind of reflect on the past two weeks and just what I've seen. Um, Matt and I are going to have... Uh, our next episode soon is going to be, uh, we're going to talk about our, our experiences protesting uh, in both Sioux Falls and in my hometown where I'm at in Brookings um, and talk about some other stuff as well. But um, I just wanted to kind of make a general reflection and just say what's been on my mind watching um, this happen um, and, and watching 
you know, this world historic moment take place um, or, or a world historical epoch uh, beginning. You know, the racist capitalist system has never been this weak in at least my lifetime. Um, and in its weakness right now, what we're seeing is that the system is using racial and political violence in order to stabilize the system. And what we're witnessing as well is the birth uh, of a radical and diverse anti-racist movement um, while the government is also turning to open fascism in order to quell this uprising. And make no mistake, in this moment, to be silent is to be on the side of the oppressors. I mean, we all know that there's people who, you know, are just straight up Republican Trump fascists, but there are also some people who you know, say, look, I support the goals, but I don't support rioting. And I'm going to get into that. But, you know, taking the side of the police or the government at all, whether they're Democrat or Republican governments, puts you on the wrong side of history, in my opinion. And the people who are now browbeating, you know, the protesters, the racists, the rapists, the looters of this country, the real looters, are now browbeating people with their, their fake concern for the black community saying, you know, oh, why would you burn your own community down? You know, which ignores the fact that these are very diverse protests uh, all across a wide range of, you know, racial backgrounds and neighborhoods, etc. But also is like, it is, I mean, the vanguard of this is the black youth. Um, and, you know, those are our comrades. But, you know, they're, they're now using this line and ignoring the fact, you know, that they don't even care about the fact that, like, every single black community in this country has been being looted for, like, 400 years. And that even in the past 20, you know, 25 years, you know, gentrification... Uh, and uh, voter suppression have done so much to undo uh, what little gains were made during the civil rights era. Um, and the police are out of control. Um, and these same people who, you know, are whining about businesses are literally justifying that, using that to justify using the militarized and racist police to brutalize and attack anyone who dares speak up against the injustices of racism and white supremacy and they're just beating people down until the only thing that they can do is hit back and one thing that i do want to say is that there are quite a few liberals and some you know not most of them the large majority of some so-called democratic socialists a very small minority, let me make that clear, who have been naive, who have been quick to parrot this line of white radical agitators. Um, and if you're going along with this, you either need to like re-examine what you're doing or, or you should be ashamed of yourself too. Um, and you're nothing other than a liberal at best and a fascist at worst. 
to sit back from your comfortable place and tell the brave people in the streets the best way to protest or the best way they ought to fight back against racism and police brutality, be quiet. All you are doing is revealing the hollowness of your politics and your fear of doing what it actually takes to change the world. So you come up with all these reasons why they aren't actually protesting the right way while you you don't do anything but criticize and not do anything to help unless it helps your career. And, you know, are there right wing infiltrators and cops trying to cause trouble, trying to incite things as a, a, an excuse to bring out the guns? You know, yeah, there are. But, you know, to be frank, uh, you know, people can find them pretty easily. They're pretty easy to spot. Um, like we all know, we all saw the video of the cop burning down uh the auto zone in minneapolis and the internet figured out and i'm not saying that some of them aren't smarter than that dumbass, but um you know i think one fortunate thing is that due to the general class makeup of both the police and the fascists who are you know trying to incite fights trying to get people killed um you know they're largely older middle class uh upper middle class uh rich white men um uh and they're they're old like they're they're and they're not smart people either like they are not well versed in uh you know social justice language or you know because there are old white men who have been at the protests and they were not trying to start shit like they were like there to protest which was wonderful um but you know they uh you know the ones of them that do try to do stuff like that they uh you can usually figure it out they're not very smart they'll walk in and say uh hello my fellow socialists uh would you like to commit a crime today uh against the state i love uh cultural marxism you know they'd say something stupid like that i have no idea what they're talking about and you know we do need to watch out for them but we also need to recognize that there are actual outbursts of rioting and looting from the people and that you know that's one of the reasons that people are even continuing to stay in the streets because of the energy that that gives people and we shouldn't lie to ourselves about the strategic and moral reasons people actually riot for you know not all these riots and looting are you know cops doing it or uh you know white uh, right-wing agitators and especially a lot of them are not just white pe- white radicals uh, you know pissing uh, you know uh, getting the black people really riled up because that's what you're saying when you say that and that's that that's why it's such a fucking disgusting thing to say because if you actually look at where that line comes from historically that's a KKK line they'd say you know the the northern white radicals were riling up black people and what you're implying really is that, you know, black people, uh, they would never want to fight back against the state. They would never, you know, experience anger the same way like we do and never want to break something like it, it, I mean, it really doesn't make sense. And especially when you can like see the videos, it's like very diverse. I've seen videos of all black people looting um, and for the most part, people are trying to hide faces. Um, so, you know, I haven't really seen any faces, 
Um, and I've seen white people looting. I've seen mixtures. I've seen, I mean, we've seen some wild stuff uh, in some of these videos. And uh, the, you know, I, and I want to make clear, like, I'm not advocating uh, or advising or telling you or because I don't think that it's a good strategy to just go out and riot. Um, but we do need to like seriously be, we need to be serious about this. We need to have a serious view about this. We need to understand the reality of the situation that we find ourselves in. People are seeing all over the country that it is possible to break the rules and get away with it. They're literally helping to create a new reality in the streets. And to some of you, especially, you know, you liberals, you need to be quiet. Don't you dare slander the people who are in the streets that are actually fighting for the things you pretend to fucking believe in. And they're way, they're 10 times braver than me or you. So just shut your mouth, all right? You don't do anything. And, you know, you know, as a socialist, communist, whatever you want to call me, I, uh, you know, we do have to look critically at the protests and say what works and what doesn't and, and what is the, the true strategic situation on the ground and, you know, come up with criticisms and answers and things like that, that we're going to develop in the natural process of building a movement. But what you're doing, you liberals, it, you're actually trying to deflate the movement. You're trying to distract, you're trying to distract from the real goals, especially liberals, because you want to pretend to be a good person without actually having to do the work to be a good person or do the work to make the world a better place. Um, and so be quiet. You know, no one, want, no one needs advice from liberals. Y'all don't know what you're doing. Um, you really don't. Okay. Um, and I also want to say, you know, Matt and I both unequivocally send our love and militant solidarity to the brave revolutionaries in Minneapolis, Houston, New York, California, and even here in goddamn South Dakota in the fight for black liberation. I mean, man, Watertown had a protest. I mean, breaking, I mean, oh my gosh, this has been crazy. West River, East River, um, it's amazing. Um, and this moment has awakened all of us with good conscience, with good conscience, who have a duty to say no more. No longer are the police going to be allowed to murder our black and native comrades with impunity. No longer will the people of America be silent while 44 million people are unemployed, 100,000 dead, and a government that's barely going to give you the weakest, most disgusting scraps of $1,200 and tell you that's going to last you 10 months. No. And I think that is also something to talk about the fact that part of the reason these are becoming so big is because so many people are unemployed sitting around they have the time to look into this stuff and actually see what's going on around them the government's not giving you any help you got nothing to do you can't go outside uh, depending on where you are and even if you can go outside you might not have fucking any money you don't know if you're going to get evicted but you can see what the police are doing to people all over the country and it rightfully outrages you and some people unfortunately it, it, it took it for, for them hitting them you know white people for them to start to pay attention to this stuff but that it is what it is and we you know 
sometimes through the natural course of historical uh, progression, these things happen. And, you know, it is what it is. Um, and we have to take advantage of this moment. And on the topic of, you know, what I said in the intro about how the government is turning to open fascism, one thing we need to recognize, you know, is that the police murder and, and rape and steal and terrorize black and native people every single day. And like, when I say that, I mean that, like literally in South Dakota, if South Dakota is one of like 25 states where if you're a police officer, you are allowed to rape someone who is in your custody and you can say that they consented and nobody in that power dynamic can consent as rape and that's on the law books like look it up it's legal in south dakota and people are starting to realize that the police cannot be reformed they don't want to be reformed they've become a separate almost uncontrollable entity that obeys no federal state or local laws they do whatever they want they kill whoever they want. They rob whoever they want. And they need to be defunded and abolished. And one thing as well that we need to understand is fascism. Fascism, in a simple definition, is the importation of the colonial and imperial methods of violence and control that we use every single day all across the globe back to the imperial core and many white people cannot help but be radicalized by this moment as they drive home from work are tear gassed dragged out of their cars and beaten even when they're not participating in literally any protests and it's unfortunate like i said earlier it's unfortunate that it took some people experiencing tear gas and getting beat and shot themselves to start to speak out but sometimes we have to recognize that the easiest way that the state accidentally creates its own enemies is through its love and uh, appreciation and use of violence and cruelty. And, you know, on the topic of fascism in America, I would make the case, and this is just me personally, I think that fascism has been here. For a long time, fascism has been here since the New Deal, in my opinion. The difference is that it, it is only, was only in you know, black and native and immigrant and uh, working class populations. Um, and what we're seeing when I talk about the importation of the imperial and colonial methods of violence back to the, the imperial core, one thing to recognize is that black people are a colonized people on a colonized land. It wasn't just that, you know, white people went over to Africa and destroyed their governments and put colonial governments in place, which they did do, um, you know, obviously. But they imported millions of people into a country that they were colonizing murdering committing one genocide already against the native population 
adding to that another genocide, the, the slave trade, the largest and most sustained genocide in human history. And that dynamic, in my opinion, has always created a fascist and colonial atmosphere in black communities, the ghetto. There's a reason it's called the ghetto nowadays. You know, I mean, we don't think about that. I mean, people know where the word ghetto comes from. It comes from the concentration, or not from the concentration camps, but it was the neighborhoods that they put all the Jews in. And, um, you know, it kind of says something about our culture that referring to black neighborhoods or poor neighborhoods or uh, immigrant or basically, you know, any type of uh, any type of race that isn't white or a poor neighborhood or both is the ghetto. And much of this ghetto was not enforced in the same way that the Nazis did it openly and uh, right in your face. It's through economic and political means um, that are done quietly. But I'll talk about that later. While we're also witnessing a massive coordinated and violent police riot, you know, we're also witnessing, honestly, some of the most beautiful and amazing solidar solidarity I've seen ever. And like this reawakening of like the fighting spirit of the working class that I feel like just hasn't been around in a long time and you can only push so people so much before they break and you know before people look around them and witness the violence and the cruelty and say no more and you could keep this country in order as long as you kept people at their shitty jobs that paid them just enough to get by never enough to you know actually save up some money and get comfortable but just enough to pay their rent and have a tiny bit left over so they're always in a precarious situation always in fear of not having enough money or losing their job and then you laid them off you laid millions of them off millions of people no longer have any jobs to go back to a hundred thousand plus americans are dead right now and that number is rapidly rising the baton and the tear gas and the rubber bullets and even real bullets only work so long as people feel that they have nothing to lose. And I think a lot of us, including myself, feel that what do we have to lose? Because, you know, if we don't do something, if we don't fight back in some way, people are going to die anyways. And especially when people talk about like, oh don't riot uh, or whatever you know that what i was talking about earlier you know one thing they ignore is that most of these all started out as peaceful protests almost 100 percent of them i'd go to say started out as peaceful protests every single one that turned into a riot started out as a peaceful protest and the police started the riots they showed they're the ones who showed up in riot gear it was peaceful it's always peaceful till the cops show up in riot gear they dressed for a riot, so they got a riot. They made sure they got a riot. And the difference is, is that instead of being able to disperse everybody like they used to be able to, you know, people are just throwing the tear gas back. People are punching back. And I haven't seen that in Sioux Falls or South Dakota, as far as I know, or anything. People have been quite peaceful here. 
Um, but you know, all over the country, people are fighting back and you know, you have the absolute right to rebel against an illegitimate government, a tyrannical government. This government is not a democracy. If this was a democracy, the police would not exist. Let's make that clear. In a true democracy, there will be no need for the police. And as the police continue to brutalize not just protesters, but any and all journalists, including those from the corporate media, as well as legal observers, innocent bystanders, pregnant women, old and elderly people, it's clear that this country has a deep sickness within it. The dark heart of white supremacy, which maybe not the best wording, but you know, y'all know what I mean. You know, this heart of white supremacy in America has never, ever been taken out of this country. And it's our generation's duty to take this disease from society, from culture, from economics, from politics, and destroy it, and fulfill the world historical task of the proletariat of the United States, which is the destruction of the most sustained and genocidal empire that's ever existed in all the history of mankind. And on that note, I want to share this quote um, of Lenin's that I discovered recently and it's just kind of stuck with me and I think that it has some applications to the situation and moment that we find ourselves in today. It's a quote from the first in a series of letters that Lenin wrote um, and sent to various comrades uh, from exile uh, from March 7th to the 26th of 1917, shortly after the February Revolution, when the Tsarist monarchy was toppled uh, in the span of eight days. Lenin writes about the unique historical circumstances that led to the February Re Revolution, as well as the, the Revolution of 1905, which is something that you may have never heard about. Quote, There are no miracles in nature or history. But every abrupt turn in history, and this applies to every revolution, presents such a wealth of content, unfolds such unexpected and specific combinations of forms and struggle, and alignment of forces of the contestants, that to the lay mind there is much that must appear miraculous. The combination of a number of factors of world historic importance was required for the Tsarist monarchy to have collapsed in a few days. We shall mention the chief of them. Without the tremendous class battles and revolutionary energy displayed by the Russian proletariat during the three years from 1905 to 1907, the second revolution could not possibly have been so rapid in the sense that its initial stage was completed in just a few days. The first revolution in 1905 deeply plowed the soil, uprooted age-old prejudices, awakened millions of workers and tens of millions of peasants to political life and political struggle, and revealed to each other and to the world all classes and all the principal parties of Russian society in their true character and in the true alignment of their interests, their forces, their modes of action, and their immediate and ultimate aims. This first revolution and the succeeding period of counter-revolution from 1907 to 14 
laid bare the very essence of the Tsarist monarchy, brought it to the, quote, utmost limit, exposed all the rottenness and infamy, the cynicism and corruption of the Tsar's clique, dominated by that monster Rasputin. It exposed all the bestiality of the Romanov family, those pogrom mongers who drenched Russia in the blood of Jews, workers, and revolutionaries. Those landlords, quote, first among peers, who own millions of acres of land and are prepared to stoop to any brutality, to any crime, to ruin and strangle any number of citizens in order to preserve the, quote, sacred right of property for themselves and their class, end quote. And I really love this quote because it's so concise um, and clear. And I think, you know, the part that I'm talking about, you know, because when we study other past revolutions, which we need to do, we need to do, it's absolutely important to do. You know, we can't just apply what, you know, I can't just apply this paragraph and say that it's going to completely fit the circumstances of today. But there are certain, you know, due to the development of capitalism, to the way that it develops so similarly no matter where it goes there are certain things that we can take from this as well as the fact that you know russia and the you know russia at the turn of the century uh at the turn of the 19th century or rather at the turn of the 20th century was a large failing slowly collapsing empire that had been destroyed um, in a war that they thought would be against a lesser race. They tried to uh, invade Japan, I believe, and they were easily destroyed. It was a severely underdeveloped country, uh, which maybe is not similar, in, in some ways actually is similar today because of the deindustrialization of America, but you know, both collapsing empires with a large racial and economic divide. Um, and I think, you know, obviously in the context of the Russian Revolution, the racial conflict is different um, because it was, you know, Jews and Muslims and immigrants, you know, he doesn't talk about it in this quote, but if you study that era, um, you know, Russia is a, a very, like America was, was and is a very diverse country. Um, you know, Russia is not simply just, you know, all Europeans or something. It's, uh, it's a very diverse country, um, just like America is. Um, but, you know, besides the obvious similarity of living in a dying empire that's led by stupid and a stupid and inbred family, um, the, the other thing that I, I think that we could be seeing in a similar manner right now or that we should at least try to be aware of um, that this, that's what could be happening right now um, and, and try to take a lesson from this is when Lenin talks about the revolution of 1905. Um, he's, you know, the revolution of 1905, to be clear, was not actually a successful revolution. It started off as a peaceful protest where they were, you know, it was kind of a liberal um, protest. I mean, uh, social democracy was developing at that time and uh, was becoming a force, but it was not um, the, uh, the Bolshevik party 
um, or the Mensheviks. That, this was when they split up, when the Social Democratic Party of Russia split uh, into the Mensheviks, uh, the minority, and the Bolsheviks, the majority. Um, and, but anyways, um, these were like kind of liberal, peaceful protests. They were beseeching the Tsar for help from the famine um, and for calling him their lord and, and begging him for, for help until they were brutally repressed by the Tsarist military. And this set off a massive reaction of violent protests and uprisings, which revealed to everyone their power that they could change things, but it also revealed to everybody the true intent of our capitalist society. It laid bare the brutality that the system feeds off of and creates in order to survive and perpetuate itself, and that this is not simply something that can be reformed out of our society, racism. It cannot be reformed out of capitalist society because capitalism requires racism and racism requires capitalism. That's a self-perpetuating, feeding prophecy. It creates itself uh, and, and spreads itself. And the, the revolution of 1905, again, allowed people to realize that they could act and change the circumstances of the world around themselves. It forced also the Tsar to introduce limited reforms in the hopes of appeasing the masses. These petty reforms did nothing for the masses, and soon afterwards he turned uh, the military and police back loose on the military or on the revolutionaries for about 10 years um, before there was a revolution. And does that sound familiar? Because I have a feeling that this eight can't wait bullshit. Um, and all these liberals trying to water down the abolish and defund calls is probably going to fail. Um, and, and so I think we might see a similar dynamic to what Lenin was talking about at that time, uh, obviously within our own historical context, uh, with its own machinations and wild, varied arrays of uh, political, economic, and social forces all interacting with one another. Um, but when these measly reforms ref fail, and they will, um, and they already have to some extent because, you know, eight can't wait, hashtag eight can't wait. If you have, haven't heard about it, it's these crappy reforms pushed by like D-Ray um, and, you know, um, uh, people who suddenly popped up in Ferguson, um, got nice job book deals, uh, claiming they had the perfect answers uh, to all activism and knew how to solve racism and police brutality. Uh, and then left Ferguson, got rich, uh, while the actual Ferguson uh, protesters and uh, revolutionaries and uh, people fighting for black liberation in the streets of Ferguson, uh, many of their leaders have, you know, we've talked about this before, but disappeared, shown up in burned cars with a bullet in the head. Who do you think did that? You know? But it's, you know, it's important to remember that as liberals try to say, oh, Black Lives Matter, we, you know, try to appease us and say, oh, they say all the right things. Just remember that the worst, the, some of the cities with the worst police brutality are democratic cities. And nothing lays bare the fakery of the two-party system than the bipartisan agreement on racial violence against black people and native people and poor people and immigrants 
and that we should take billions of dollars away from things that the people of this country could actually benefit from, like social services, Medicare for all. You know, we're still in a pandemic. Green New Deal. And that money instead goes to an organization with the sole purpose of protecting and enforcing the racist and exploitative nature of the capitalist system. So, I don't trust a single Democrat. Not Bernie. I don't trust Elon. I don't trust AOC. Honestly, I don't. They're, they, you know, Bernie basically said he doesn't really support police, uh, you know, defunding. And, you know, we've moved beyond Bernie. We've moved beyond these, these social Democrat politicians. And, you know, uh, you know, we don't have any, we don't have the love and the worship of our politicians that the same way liberals and conservatives do. We recognize when they do, when they aren't serving our purposes anymore. And, you know, some of them are serving our purposes. I, I, you know, I do think that like having them in there in Congress and the Senate is good, uh, but they can only do so much and you cannot build, um, you know, a socialist movement um, by running uh, candidates trying to get elected when you haven't yet built the social base in order to get elected. You know, you know what I mean? You, you don't have, you can try. And that's what Bernie was trying to build the social base for a political revolution in the time of the democratic primary and the four years preceding that and he failed. Um, and we need to recognize the limits to social democratic politics. Um, and you know, hopefully similar to the, the 1905 revolution in Russia, the first revolution, this moment, uh, you know, can give the working class of America the realization that we can change the world, that we can destroy racism, that we can take the power back and give it back to all the people. And hopefully this moment will be, you know, a catalyst, not just for the left, broadly speaking, but for all people to join the left and to begin seriously organizing an anti-racist revolutionary working class party. There will be no revolution without an organized working class united across racial lines against imperialism and colonialism. It might take another 10 years, but if we are organized together in solidarity, there are no limits to what we can accomplish. And the absolute depravity of this government cannot be overstated. As I was talking about earlier about the, the fake outrage about businesses being looted. Those same people had nothing to say two months ago when thousands of small businesses closed, while billion-dollar corporations were given one of the largest transfers in wealth from the bottom to the top of society in human history. One of the most disgusting acts of looting from a government onto its people in human history, like literally in terms of the amount of money, one of the biggest thefts in human history taken off of the backs of the working class of all colors but especially the the backs of our black and native comrades these very same people you know don't give a damn about that looting from uh, the federal government but now they they're freaking out because a target got burned these same people were telling you a month ago that ordering a lockdown because of the pandemic was the ultimate sign of fucking fascism, and they were screaming and crying and fighting cops 
and attacking police while they were armed with actual guns have absolutely no shame turning around and saying, you know, if a police set a curfew at 9 o'clock and it's 9.01 and you're out on the street, it's okay for the fucking police to come shoot you with rubber bullets or beat your fucking head in or shoot rubber bullets at people on their porches. And, you know, give me a fucking break, you people. The MAGA chuds and bootlickers are the fucking dumbest people to ever walk this planet. They're a perfect representation of American culture, what it's led up to, of fascism in the 21st century. A bunch of uneducated, rich, and upper-middle-class business owners, homeowners, petty bourgeois losers who don't know, can barely read, don't read anything unless it's on TV, in the TV guide, freaking out as they slowly realize how unpopular they are. Make no mistake, though, even though the large majority of people hate these people, these fascists, that doesn't mean that they still aren't extremely dangerous. And they are dangerous because, generally, think about it. They're middle class, upper middle class, petty bourgeois, uh, small business owner, landlords, police officers, as well as the, the big bourgeois, the, the large multinational corporations and large landlords, industrial farms, etc. Do you think that, for instance, those people... You know, do you think that just because a cop puts on a gun and a badge and a uniform, they suddenly become apolitical? You know, yeah, your landlord loves Trump, but I'm sure he would never engage in housing discrimination. And I think we all know who landlords and cops voted for. We all know who big business voted for. We all know. We all know. And do you think that their political views might factor in when they spend almost 100% of their time harassing and terrorizing black people, native people, immigrants, and working class people in general? Do you think that your landlord doesn't vote Republican? Do you think your healthcare executives don't vote Republican? Do you think that your boss doesn't vote Republican? They are all Republicans because Republicans, especially in South Dakota, allow small town landlords to essentially monopolize the real estate and rental market and coordinate with one another to keep prices artificially low in the case of uh, you know uh, landlords as well as the monopolization of farming and the destruction of small business or small farms and you know actually agriculture that's sustainable and they do it here in Sioux Falls all over the state uh, and country and it's important to keep in mind because also how many people aren't employed right now. Either aren't being able to access unemployment, either already got or still haven't received the measly $1,200 that's going to be barely enough to last about a month. You know, these landlords and corporations, they also are preparing for the ine inevitable mass evictions that are coming. And who do you think is going to be proportionally, disproportionately affected? It's going to be black people, native people, immigrants, working class, and poor people. That is another example of why the economic dimensions of the struggle for racial justice are so important. Because obviously, the main focus and igniter of this uprising was and is and continues to be racist police violence. But we also have seen people, um, you know, like black people uh, speaking up about their workplaces. We've seen people, you know, black women coming forward 
with uh, stories of rape and abuse and 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 you know so many people speaking out on the different varied effects of racism not just you know the overt you know cops shooting a black guy while he's obviously not a threat you know because obviously that is jarring and shocking and horrible and that's what can get people out into the streets but what it can also do is catalyze us to realize that this happens every day and sometimes it happens much more quietly and in much equally as violent ways that are not necessarily enforced just through the cops the cops are there to ensure that all this can go down peacefully or take you down yourself if you get out of uh, out of hand but you know we need to connect this to the economic power structure as well or to the uh, you know the economic um conditions of our country whose private property are the police defending and these uh, corporate media and all these people who are freaking out about corporations and businesses being looted because if you actually think about it and look at it houses and small businesses really are not being looted at all uh you know from what i've seen unless you count police break breaking into people's houses to arrest protesters or attacking businesses so that they can blame it on the protesters which seen video of both it's the large corporate interests of both business and landlords of both big business rather and landlords who are being protected by the police they obviously don't care at this point about the well-being of anyone else regardless of their color considering the way they've been indiscriminately attacking huge crowds of people assaulting people cornering medics you know literally committing war crimes on their own people right now using chemical weapons and you know it's important to make the connection and show the connection between the political and economic and that's why i'm you know making this point and there's a reason that most Trump people who are constantly fantasizing about murdering protesters in Antifa, who are, you know, they're mostly just comfortable middle class assholes who see the way the rest of the country is suffering and are lashing out in fear because they're afraid of being poor and they're afraid that, you know, the masses are going to come for them. Um, and so they're lashing out in fear in order to protect their economic, political, and racial uh, power and hold over the system. And I think obviously, you know, again, the murder of George Floyd is what sets spark for people to take to the streets and demand justice. And the vicious response from the police as well has mobilized people to, you know, continue and to speak out against racism. But, you know, that violence itself has made people realize, like, we need to attack racism in all the places it can rear its head. And again, you know, not just in the more open and violent racism of, you know, white cops or vigilantes murdering black people, which to be clear is the number one priority right now, because they're literally doing it. People are dying. They're killing people. But we also need to recognize the quieter and equally violent methods of, you know, oppression and racial control of, you know, dividing the workers. We must expand the fight against racism into the workplace, and we need to attack it at the core if we want to truly destroy it. This is going to necessitate the expansion of democracy into the workplace uh, and eliminate the stranglehold of private property on our society through collective ownership and redistribution of wealth. This will strike a major blow at one of the major economic 
creators of racism. And if you look at who owns the property in this country, it's largely, again, the wealthy, white, big business elite. That's why all of a sudden the number one concern is be protecting from private property damage and having this inane debate about peaceful protesting versus rioting when the police are literally attacking the peaceful protests and creating the riots. Um, and in order to create an actually racially and socially just and economically just world that is going to, again, necessitate the massive redistribution of wealth from the wealthy elite back to the working class and colonized peoples from which they stole their wealth. And that is, uh, you know, part of the reason they dog whistle so much about socialism and Antifa and communism and anarchism, because the, these ideologies and, uh, you know, economic doctrines, whatever the hell you want to call them, uh, these re recognize and require that this redistribution of wealth and political power will come at the expense of the ruling class in a country where the large percentage of the working class itself is not white. So any socialist redistribution is going to be taking from this small white elite and giving to the massive, diverse working class, much of which is black, uh, and immigrant, um, and you know, not white, but you know, obviously there are, is a large mass of white working class people too. Um, and that this racial solidarity is their worst fear. And they, the ruling class are the minority party of the world. And we, as the working class are the majority who toils and we are owed the products of our labor, not just as a matter, not just the products of our labor, but the, the profit from our labor, not just as a matter of basic human principles, but also as this is the only permanent solution to destroying the economic and cultural base that creates the conditions for racism to thrive, forcing workers to compete against one another for jobs, creating an ideology and culture which teaches you at your core that you need to be suspicious, you need to be competitive, you need to look out for number one and watch out for the other. And you, there's always a threat of you losing your job or someone taking your job, immigrants taking your job. Thus, they do this as well as, you know, enforce the racial hierarchy through economic means by paying white people more and black people less. They do these to create the conditions for the working class to turn against itself on the basis of race. And so we need to educate and agitate to overcome this racist mentality among the white working class um, so that we can strike a major blow against racism. And in this time, we all need to uh, begin, if you haven't already, to study the work of the Black Liberation Movement and, the, you know, the Black Liberation Struggle of the entire world, you know. But, you know, especially in my opinion, you know, Malcolm X, I've talked about him before, Black Panthers, Fred Hampton, Angela Davis. Um, and, you know, I think we should also study Ma Ma Martin Luther King um, because, you know, we should actually engage with him, with his work and his life, not in the way that liberals and conservatives invoke him in order to attack protesters and uh, rioters, but actually to engage with his work because he was a really fantastic speaker um, and he was very brilliant and, you know, he, he wasn't right about everything, but he had very good analysis and, and this moral uh, sense 
And especially towards the end of his life, he really did start to evolve his politics and begin start building and talking about building, you know, a radical, multiracial, anti-racist, uh, working class movement. And that is really for sure worth engaging with and studying. Let's not let the liberals whitewash MLK as just like, you know, some boring, peaceful protester. He certainly wasn't just some harmless icon and he evolved and became more and more radical before he was assassinated by the FBI. And, you know, that's not even to mention the fact that he did carry a gun with him from what I've read. And, uh, you know, he did believe in self-defense, but, uh, you know, his his uh, way of talking about it was, you know, obviously different than Malcolm X. Um, but the black liberation struggle is the immediate task that falls upon anyone who calls themselves a socialist or a communist or an anarchist or an anti-racist, which, you know, if you believe either any of those or all of them, you already should know this, but it always needs to be said. Our role, speaking of white communists and white radicals, is to build the revolutionary bonds of solidarity between workers of all races, obviously, as all communists' role is. But in order to do that as white communists, we need to recognize and reach out to our community, our neighbors, people we may have never spoken to, and start with something you know as simple as asking them if they need anything. Uh, you know, um, and after all, many people are unemployed. You know, people might need help, and you know, white suburban or rural uh, culture at least where I live, has a tendency, you know, this Midwestern kind of uh, minding your own business. And, you know, don't stick in your nose in other people's business. Keep to yourself. And we need to make one another realize, uh, you know, that this is actually all of our business. And, you know, I can be certainly guilty of that as well being here in South Dakota. Because you could spend weeks and not know what the hell is happening in your own state if, like most young people, you don't watch TV. So you don't see local news, which even if you did see no local news, it's going to give you an extremely wrong perception of what's going on in our state, um, which is like the main reason Matt and I are doing this. Um, and, you know, we're breaking beyond that. And we're, we're breaking beyond this, this Midwestern minding your own business attitude. And we need to push our white brothers and sisters and non-binary friends into becoming comrades for the struggle uh, for racial and social and economic justice. We're not simply allies. And in my personal opinion, I, I don't like the narrative or the word ally just because, um, you know, and it's, you know, some people might disagree with me. But for me, the word ally implies a passivity that I don't like. And, you know, if we, as a movement as a whole, as an anti racist, diverse, movement with want to remake the world in our own image that is a world without domination without hierarchies without institutionalized racial violence and robbery of the poor then we uh you know white radicals in this movement we need to treat ourselves just as much in the struggle as our black comrades we need to create a mindset of solidarity so that when we see one of our black comrades attacked, we rightly view that as an attack on all of us and our culture and our community. And I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, we're just going to 
take over, you know, like all the cultures are going to meld together and there'll be no uniqueness between any cultures anymore. But we do need to create a, a culture of, of solidarity, of racial solidarity and destroy the racist capitalist culture that's been so strongly entrenched since the birth of this nation. And we can do this in the streets, standing side by side with our black and native and white and every other color uh, comrade, demanding that black lives not only matter, but that they be liberated. That, you know, the black liberation struggle in America is the foundational struggle that the international proletarian revolution must be based on. And it cannot be any other way, in my view. And Harry Haywood, you may have heard of him. He's a black American communist who was highly influential in uh, the Communist Party of the USA and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. He ended up uh, moving to the Soviet Union and uh, wrote about his experiences um, living in a society that did not have a racist um, system a racist system, a system that wasn't based off of buying uh, or, or, you know, exploiting one another through wage labor uh, and private property. Um, and, you know, he did talk about prejudice, but he, you know, his writings on the Soviet Union are fascinating. But he had this to say on the black liberation struggle uh, in a speech he gave in Congress in 1977 called We Have Taken... First step, the first step on a long march. Quote, we had seen that the black liberation struggle would be, as it had always been, a spark, a catalyst pushing forward the whole working class and people's struggle in the U.S. Far from being simply a struggle for reforms, as the revisionists claimed, it was, as Chairman Mao called it, a clarion call to all oppressed peoples throughout the world to rise up and defeat imperialism. That says it right there from uh, Harry Haywood himself. Simple, concise. It's the catalyst for revolution. And this is a national liberation struggle to free not only the people whose ancestors were forced to come here in the most sustained campaign of pure evil in human history and forced to build this country on the bones of the indigenous tribes and the land that was stolen from them. The struggle for black liberation is the root by which all of humanity can be freed from the daily violence and alienation of a system that has, for the last 400 years, wreaked nothing but havoc and destruction for the majority of people who are forced to live under it. And this is the original sin of this country. We have never had a revolutionary break with the Chattel slavery system that we came from. Yes, we had a civil war, and maybe, you know, had Lincoln not been assassinated and the army stayed in the South, um, you know, maybe things could have progressed differently and some type of multiracial democracy could have been created, but that's not what happened. And so we have to deal with what we have. And this country has never had any reparations of any sort, which would create a more just and racially uh, just and egalitarian society. And this has gone on for far too long. The contradictions of capitalism are almost calling out to us, asking us how much more are we going to tolerate this cruelty. We, now again talking about white radicals, understand our task is not to be leaders. We need to be on the streets. We need to be protecting our black comrades by getting on the front line 
and putting our bodies between them and the police if possible, protecting them. It's time for us to be the foot soldiers because we've given enough orders. We need to be the ones to, to take some beatings and, and take some hits. It's our turn, and that's what we got to do. And we need to spread this message of radical, militant, anti-racist solidarity to our communities. And in history, in stories, you know, movies, the most beautiful thing that a person can do is sacrifice themselves for someone else or for the, for the greater good. And I don't mean, when I say that, I don't mean that living in a world without racism will be a sacrifice because it'll be the opposite. It'll be the easiest and most wonderful lives we could ever hope to live. But to get there is another matter entirely. And sacrifices will need to be made, are already being made, by the brave revolutionaries all around the country, the protesters. They're taking the beatings. They're getting arrested. In some places, they're fighting back. And in mo most importantly, they're doing their best to protect one another. Some of them have already died for the cause. Something like 30 black men and I think 17 protesters have been killed as of uh, the time of recording. And those numbers probably aren't mutually exclusive. In Omaha, a young man was murdered trying to take a gun away from a cowardly fascist pig who was threatening his friends. He's a martyr, a hero. His name was James Scurlock, and he wasn't the first, and I'm afraid that he won't be the last. I am afraid. I'm scared, like we all are. But the thing is, if we do nothing, people are going to die anyways. The state can murder all of us, but also, we could win. And so there is no argument here to be made for harm reduction or other than to keep fighting for a revolution. There is no reforming the police. If you believe that two weeks ago, there is no way you can now, unless you're on their side. And not if you've been seeing the reality of what's been happening in our streets. The real rioters are the police. The real looters are the police and Wall Street. The vandals are the police and the white supremacists. And quite frankly, I don't care that a police station got burnt down or some stuff got broke. I don't care. Good. Because you want to know why? George Floyd is dead. And if they burnt the entire city to the ground, it still wouldn't be enough. And there are some liberals who say the same thing, but say and said, well, use that as an excuse to not do anything, really, is, is what they're, why they say that. But they're missing the point of what I'm saying. I'm not encouraging you to go burn shit down, seriously. But the point is that George Floyd's life was worth more than every single building in Minneapolis. And that is the argument that we need to make. People over property. An entire city's worth of buildings is not bur burnt down. An entire city burnt to the ground is not worth more than one single human life. The most money that you could ever acquire and hoard in a lifetime is not worth more than a single human life. And, you know, human life is beautiful um, and terrifying and happy and everything in between. And that is why we fight. So that our black comrades are able to experience a full, true human life. Be able to go to school without being harassed, go to the mall or the store or the gas station without having to worry about getting followed or killed. Be able to live and learn and love and care and be angry and be sad and laugh 
and do all of the myriad of things that make human life worth living. That is what revolution is about. That is what communism is about. And that is what black liberation is about. It's about humanity and it's about freedom. It's about justice and equality. And, you know, that's all I have for tonight, for this episode. I just wanted to share, you know, I just felt like I needed to say this and just, you know, put my thoughts out there um, and be sure to subscribe um, and follow us uh, on Twitter at RFSDPod. Um, you can find us on anchor.fm slash Radio Free SD. Uh, as well as Spotify and Apple Podcasts, uh, where you should make sure to go ahead and give us a five-star rating. Um, And just, you know, be safe out there. Stay safe, keep up the fight, and don't ever surrender. Good night.